I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Inez Stepman. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, today we're going to do a special election-focused, free-flowing discussion episode. Maybe this will be cathartic. Maybe we'll go through several stages of grieving. I guess we'll see. We're probably all bleary-eyed, but uh, excited to be dissecting everything that went on last night and probably will, well, I guess we'll now be going on for several weeks. So the way we'll kind of structure this conversation is we'll go around the room and, and basically we'll talk about why we thought the election went the way that it did, some of the more demoralizing aspects, some of the more uplifting or positive takeaways from it. We'll cover all sorts of specific issues that were on the ballot or maybe weren't on the ballot based upon the messaging from abortion to the economy, parents' rights, early and mail-in voting, and then some of the trends going forward as we look towards both at a minimum, a Republican House, and then also what is to come in 2024. So with that, I'm happy to open it up to whoever wants to go for, forth and uh, vent, give us your 30,000-foot perspective on what transpired yesterday. I volunteer. Don't all jump Inez. at once. I think, and I know Inez has been, it's been really just like gurgling. I thought you were going to say you volunteer, and I was really happy with that. <laughs> if you were going to say I volunteer as tribute, but okay. Um well, I, I have a few kind of maybe disconnected observations, but my my bottom line or top line take, whichever uh, metaphor you prefer, is that there have to be two sides to the the most successful Republican sort of campaigns and messaging and governance. Um, I think uh, this is a, a pretty good another piece of data in favor of the idea that the culture war is the big tent. Um, I want to split abortion off from that. I do think that's kind of that that is a new issue reintroduced to 2022, um, but kind of has more traditional sides in the culture war, say from the moral majority of the 1990s. But issues like the differences between male and female, indoctrination in schools, crime, immigration, which by the way, in, in every single one of these issue polls is always in like number three or number four. And I haven't heard almost any sort of uh, mainstream conversation about that fact. It's always, there was some discussion around crime, never around immigration. Um, but those are all issues that uh, I think can be cobbled into very successful campaigns that do reach across the aisle, reach um, out to independence, even in purple and blue states. And, and the evidence I would offer for that is not just Ron DeSantis's incredible margin of victory for actually governing um, in Florida, but also Lee Zeldin overperforming um, in New York. In fact, I was really disappointed last night when I found out that he wasn't going to be our governor here in New York. But the more I looked into it today, the more I think it was a real success story. There's a 17-point swing in New York, flipped a bunch of important House races. It's, it's why we're still fairly confident that the House um, is going to go to Republicans. It's because of overperformance in New York. And he really ran kind of this culture war campaign. But the second part of it is you have to attach going hard on some of these modern culture war issues with a general normie vibe of competency. I think chaos is really unattractive to a lot of the voters who are maybe persuadable on some of the cultural messaging. 
um, but are really turned off by, frankly, a lot of the things that, you know, we talk about, that I talk about, that I think are really important um, and true, unfortunately, about the country. But I do think that that turns away independents um, and particularly sort of suburban female voters. And I think that that's it does seem to be a winning coalition for the GOP. You know, that that was round, um, tested in, in Virginia with Yunkin. It's been retested uh, with an actual serious competency follow-up from Ron DeSantis in Florida. And now it was tested in a deep blue state and caused a 17-point swing in a deep blue state that was really important for the GOP's overall night to not be a complete disaster. So that's like kind of my top line take. Well, I just want to jump in so that I can follow up on the the Yunkin point, because that was one of the ones that I was was going to make. I do think there's an interesting contrast when you look at the races in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and the race in Virginia last year. Now, Virginia happened before Dobbs um, and it wasn't in a midterm. So it's an off year election. You don't have as many people showing up at the polls um, and you don't have quite as crowded of a media cycle. But Tim Michaels in Wisconsin and Doug Mastriano, I think we're by a lot of measures like you could you can pretty much look at those guys and say probably not appealing candidates to the average voter, let alone in um, in, in sort of convince independence to come out. And the conventional wisdom uh, was always sort of, well, Biden's economy is so bad and the left is so woke that Tim Michaels might pull it off, that Doug Mastriano might pull it off, although I don't know if anyone really thought that Mastriano was going to have a serious shot. Um, but th that's, a, I think, an instructive contrast, which is that Youngkin was actually running in a state that is pretty clearly blue. It's not purple in the way that Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are. Virginia is a blue state now. Um, and and it, it just sort of gets into this idea that, from my perspective, Republicans need to think about the reality that you can never replicate Donald Trump. That's not a smear or an attack on Donald Trump. If anything, it's the opposite. Like there is nobody that can pull off the stuff that Donald Trump pulls off and there never will be. There will never be another candidate like Donald Trump in the history of the country. <laughs> like There never has been and there never will be. And so whatever it is, the je ne sais quoi or the vibes, uh, that people like about Donald Trump for all kinds of reasons the media still doesn't understand. Whatever that is, nobody else has it. Tim Michaels doesn't have it. Doug Mastriano doesn't have it. And so when you strip that away, um, you, you really need to have different candidates uh, or not different candidates so much as different campaigns. You need to run different campaigns. You need to have uh, a, a real clear message of economic populism and cultural sanity. And to Inez's point, you need to cut down on the, the chaos optics. Um, you know, you, you can't be as chaotic as Trump without the je ne sais quoi of Trump, right? Whatever that is, you can't have both of them at the same time. And I get it, the left sucks and the Republican establishment sucks, but there has to be a way for the conservative movement to channel that more constructively into candidates who can win independence. Um, otherwise, that sort of realignment is just gonna be something Republicans take for granted. If you look at the results in Erie County, Pennsylvania, uh, really bad for Dr. Oz. It's just a great example of how just because somebody's telegenic uh, like Donald Trump is and, you know, can can be sort of charming um, because they're telegenic and all that. They have the celebrity factor, their uh, uh, living room name or household name. Um, 
you know, that, that's, that's not going to compensate just because the economy is bad. Uh, it, these are people who are in real pain and have been for a long time. Um, so all those this out, I'll, I'll just kick it over to somebody else with that. But I, I just think a lot of this momentum needs to be channeled more constructively. Um, and there are a lot of evidences, evidence that there is momentum. From Lee Zeldin, there's evidence, like Inez said. From Rick Caruso, there's evidence. From Drazen in Oregon, the momentum exists. Republicans need to sort of figure out how to channel it um, when Trump's not on the ballot. And, and that's a no easy feat. Um, I think one of the biggest problems you know, that I saw, I think there's, you know, today there's been so many reflections on candidate quality and, you know, we're not putting forward the best people and a lot of finger pointing and all that. I frankly think a lot of the questions about candidate quality is a little bit of cope. You know, to some extent, I think the reality is that Republicans, and I, I would put this firmly at the feet of the Republican leadership, they didn't have an agenda. They ran on vibes, right? <laughs> they ran on the idea that inflation would be so painful that it would make the case for them. They ran on, you know, the, uh, the vibe that somehow, you know, crime or, you know, rampant whatever would be enough to push people to Democrats. And, you know, I, I wrote this piece for the Federalist back in, Fe in January. I wrote another version of it in February. I wrote another version of it in March, basically saying that, look, you guys can't simply point at the other guy and be like, he sucks, vote for me. It's not going to get you anywhere. You have to put forward a compelling vision for what you want uh, to do. And I think, you know, absent what Emily's talking about, absent this very um, unique quality that Donald Trump had, which I would identify as a very visceral connection with the voter, he's not ashamed of Republican voters the way that a lot of the base or a lot of the establishment Washington Republicans are. They are embarrassed by their base. They hate that they represent, you know, people that go to McDonald's and, you know, work in the trades. Donald Trump loved those people and he was unafraid to represent them and he did things for them, right? They saw themselves reflected in his policies and the way he talked to the people that sneered at them. That, to Emily's point, isn't so much a policy agenda. It is really sort of a, 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 a unique to the person that he was. Again, like you can't replicate that. So you have to have an agenda. You have to tell people what you're going to do. And again and again and again, the Republican Party couldn't offer anything except, well, you know, we're, we're going to hand wave about how bad inflation is and we'll do something about it. You know, no, no specifics, but we'll do something about it. And I think why Ron DeSantis has been so successful, you know, is that he also captured a little bit of that Trump dynamic in that, you know, he is unafraid and unembarrassed about who his base is and he, he wins for them, you know, and, and he doesn't back down from it. And I think that that nationally Republicans just haven't been able to capitalize on that. And I think that, you know, the fact today also that the Republican leadership failed so spectacularly at delivering on, you know, what we all expected and then are demanding from their, the, their voters and, you know, the, the elected members in Washington to give them a promotion, I think reflects now a, a complete lack of awareness about why we're even here, which is my black pill for this episode. Well, yeah. And I'd say on top of that, you have to assume, one has to assume that the establishment will take all the wrong lessons from what transpired and say, look, this is what happens when you run nationalist populist candidates across the country. You need to run more people like us. Um, you know, kind of building on your point about combination of the two to articulate a compelling vision and nationalize the race. And, and remember, going back several months, 
it was pretty much the explicit strategy of Mitch McConnell on the Senate side not to put forth an agenda. I think almost verbatim, that was like, that was the plan. Um, in my sort of running list that I've been compiling as I've been stewing over what I've been observing uh, and chatting with people for the last 24 hours, the first item on that list that I had was of potential reasons why last night went the way that it did. And obviously we're talking today, Wednesday night, we don't know how Arizona and Nevada is gonna shake out and we obviously don't know what's gonna happen in Georgia ultimately. But inability to articulate a compelling vision was number one on my list of items for how you explain how we got here when stepping back on the basis of the historical precedent and then obviously the myriad disasters that everyone can see around them, the default position should have been a massive red wave, period, full stop. Now, combating that, I will say, and I, and I, I tweeted this out today, that the task for Republicans now is to beat an opponent that turns out tens of millions of people, even after killing their livelihoods, punishing their children, coercing them into getting jabs, unleashing criminals on their streets and bilking them of their earnings and savings. In part, the fact that they could win tens of millions of people, given the fundamentals at play here, does speak to just how formidable the Democrat machine is, as we talk about every single week, not only controlling the commanding heights of society and therefore having disproportionate influence over everyone. Uh, and of course, controlling our communications media with the exception now to some extent of Twitter and then having the Democrat party and then having most of the GOP. Uh, but then of course, there's the process itself and most of the quote unquote reforms that were rushed through in 2020 have persisted in many states. And they have built a massive, even leaving aside illicit potential measures at play, legitimately, they have built in a number of structural advantages in terms of dominating the election infrastructure and also the get out the vote aspect of things. But they've built a machine that Republicans are just starting to try and get around to grapple with. And I wrote about this in a report for Real Clear Investigations, you know, this cycle up to election day, Republicans had put forth the vast majority of the election-related lawsuits, which was a huge change, a paradigm shift from 2020, where Democrats dominated in terms of the lawfare going into the 2020 election. But Cleta Mitchell et al. got attacked, harangued by the press for having the gall to want there to be poll observers and poll watchers and recruiting them. But this is a defensive action. I mean, they're playing total catch up here in terms of the mechanics. And there are a lot of reasons for this, by the way, beyond the fact that Democrats are just really good at organizing and machine politics. And this is sort of the nature. This is what the natural extension of their ideology. There's also the other aspect of this, which is that there was a consent decree that sorts of activities for the last 30 years up through 2019. So there's, there's a lot of factors at play. I'll, I'll just take through a few other ones worth considering. You had candidates who were stymied by the establishment in terms of dollar allocation, where they really could have used money down the stretch. Obviously, candidate quality, we can debate. Uh, the overall center-left orientation of the public, we can debate. Um, the media advantage, obviously, the in-kind contribution, probably incalculable to Democrats. If every day you were portrayed as uh, evil and nefarious and Hitler, Hitlerian, and the other side is portrayed as just it, just righteous and virtuous, obviously tough to overcome, even in this environment. Um, on top of that, early voting, clearly a factor with Fetterman when you had hundreds of thousands of votes in before he was exposed to 
the disinfectant of actually having to debate and being shown to be completely incapable of doing so. Libertarian spoilers, which was a theme, by the way, in 2020 as well. And I haven't really seen a lot of reportage on it, but in Georgia, certainly in the Senate race, for example, and in slew of other races as well, you saw libertarians siphoning off one to two percent. I mean, you would assume that hurt the Republican, not necessarily, but that's meaningful, obviously, in a knife's edge election like this. I, I assume we probably can talk in length about this, but the Dobbs ruling and the various referenda or initiatives that were on ballot, seen an analysis from Richard Hanania basically showing that those initiatives, the pro-abortion vote on those initiatives actually did better, outperformed the Democrats who were at the tops of the tickets in many of the states where there were these referenda. That's pretty interesting as an anecdote. Uh, and then we can get to the redistricting and fraud, corruption, et cetera. But I've, la I've laid out a whole potential slew of factors that impacted things. I can talk about some of the, the silver linings and positive things, the demoralizing things. But I wonder if anyone wants to jump and pick at any of the kind of factors as maybe weighing more heavily than others in terms of why this wasn't a red wave, which should have been the default. Sure. I'll, 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 oh, go ahead, Inez. Go ahead. Um, I, I also have written down no no national message except Dems bad. Um, so I completely agree with Rachel, what um, what Ben and Rachel were saying about the fact that you, you can't just point to the other guy and say they suck, um, especially when the Republican Party has such a bad track record of actually delivering on the issues that even its base cares about, let alone independence, right? Um, I, I don't think that that's a particularly compelling message. I will admit I thought Dems were so bad this year that it would take them over the finish line, but apparently that's still not the case. Um, there, there's also two more factors I'd like to throw into this discussion here before we like really dig into it. Um, one is the, the very different um, reaction to sort of realignment political messaging in the Sun Belt versus the Rust Belt. Um, and I think that the Republican Party is going to have to deal with, and this is a very, in some ways, a very traditional political concern in America, right? You're talking about states uh, with different economic interests and, and building um, a, a geographical or regional coalition. Um, and I think that the divide between what works, say, in Arizona and Texas uh, versus what works in Ohio um, is going to be something that continues to plague the Republican Party, especially without, as we were talking about, that kind of gloss of the Trump charisma on the top of the ticket. I think when you get down to brass tacks, actually, uh, for example, you know, a lot of the economic messaging that is popular in Arizona, not going to be popular in Ohio, because those two states fundamentally have very different, like, uh, very different economies and very different export import. Um, very different like interest. In some ways, again, this is very traditional, right? Um, most of the, the debate before the Civil War, before slavery moved to the top of the ticket in terms of the most important issue in the country was about tariffs because they hurt one part of the country and helped another, right? So um, in some ways, again, this is very traditional, but it's still a problem that the Republican Party is going to have to solve going forward. Um, the other thing I'd like to throw into the mix is there's a generational transfer happening before our eyes. Um, and I think uh, Ben Dominich pointed this out real well, and then AOC got mad at him for, for pointing it out. So that was pretty fun to watch on Twitter. Uh, but we are watching a generational 
shift happen as millennials, the, the biggest generation in American history, start really coming into their own politically and voting in large numbers. And if you break down a lot of the um, results by age and by sex, you'll find that young unmarried women really, really carry the Democratic Party just across the board. And there's going to be more and more unmarried women because millennials are on track to have about half of us to not marry and not have children at this point. It's really, it's really so rude of you to, to talk to me like that, Inez. <laughs> no, but but it is it is going to change our politics and we better grapple with the the you know actual results. I think the right we like to talk about why that's a, a problem. And I know um all of us do talk why about like why this is sort of a, a really important factor in our cultural malaise. Um, but it's going to start having really, really direct on the ground uh political impacts. And those impacts are only gonna get larger, not smaller. So something just to pick up on and uh, that sort of marries this topic of what the polls were missing with what Inez was talking about is just that um, I I actually think polls underestimated the extent to which abortion would motivate people, especially in states that had a referendum um, on the ballot. So think about Michigan, uh, the extent to which that would draw in um, voters who were were motivated specifically by abortion uh, to pull the lever for Democrats to staying home or for Republicans. So I think there was, uh, I think the youth turnout is a story of this. And I, I think the polls underestimated that. And that's another thing. I mean, I've said repeatedly, the reason Democrats are talking so much about abortion and about democracy is because, you know, listen, political consultants are dumb and they're overpriced, but they are self-interested. So something was telling them uh, to do that. And it seems as though, in a midterm election, they had their own calculations that suggested for turnout, those two issues were important. Those, and you can see if you look somewhere like Pennsylvania, one of the factors that 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 likely or plausibly put Futter, Futterman over the edge uh, is the fact that you had young voters coming out who were motivated to vote on that issue particularly, um, and economy sort of be damned. What got them out of their seats was was that. I think uh, it's possible that was a factor in, in how close the election was in the Wisconsin Senate race, although Ron Johnson has prevailed as of the time of this taping. So I do think that's an important point. What I, I guess, and Inez just said this too, what I overestimated was the was how powerful the economy would be. I thought that would offset um, concerns about abortion. And I thought actually that it might even inflame independents and Republicans to say, these guys, all they're talking about is abortion. I just want somebody to fix inflation. Um, and Third Way had a poll showing like 56% of voters thought inflation would get worse if Democrats controlled Congress. So I think that's a, just kind of an important point to make looking at all of this. Um, and there, the pro-life groups are making an, an interesting argument, and I'd be curious if anyone else wants to weigh in on this. Um, they're making an interesting argument that post-Dobbs, uh, the candidates who handled abortion more clearly and, and even kind of leaned into being pro-life did better. So the example they, they cite would be J.D. Vance, who had a very clear message. He did not shy away from talking about abortion. In fact, he said, let's do it. Um, I, I, we don't know if Carrie Lake is going to 
went, is going to win, but that's another person that I think it was listed her among the candidates that did that. Whereas Dr. Oz did, did not handle the topic very well. He shied away from it, didn't want to talk about abortion, didn't want to come with a clear answer about what he supported or what he didn't support, what Democrats support or what Democrats don't support. So I think that's going to be part of the postmortem chatter. Um, but I do think that this, this uh, what's the right, the, the tidal wave narrative that built over the course of basically the last 10 days. I mean, that the tidal wave narrative was new and it's because there was, there, were, there was polling coming in from New Hampshire, there was polling coming in uh, from Oregon, which is a really close race to the point where it's a win for Republicans, even though it's technically a loss. Um, there's close polling coming in in LA. That, that race as we're talking here is really tight. Karen Bass might lose, uh, we don't know, but she might. Um, there was just going on. And that was when focus shifted and said, Democrats have been running all of these ads on abortion and way less on the economy. Um, but in a midterm, if you could just turn out those people who really care about those issues um, and you have a very clear message, which is that Republicans are taking rights away from you, um, you, you can do that. And again, I don't think Republicans had super clear messaging in all of these places. Um, and the other thing I'll add to that uh, is, I mean, the, the, there are so many different factors that go into everything. I think Orrin Cass had a good point. He tweeted about how, you know, to Trump brought the working class coalition into the party, but uh, it might be, you know, the work of, of someone else to, to come in and keep doing it. I'm paraphrasing Orrin, so don't hold him responsible for my paraphrasing. Um, but something to that extent, like that the realignment continues apace, you can see it. The Republicans, uh, can't, like the margins in Florida are huge for Republicans in a way that is devastating for Democrats. Lee Zeldin made inroads in ways that are um, losses for Democrats, even when they're like wins technically on paper. Um, there, there are signs that things really are shifting, but in, until Republicans uh, can figure out what they're offering uh, and, and what it is that you're not just sort of saying, the Biden economy has terrible inflation. Well, people also are, have jobs right now um, and feel like they have a lot of power to flex in those jobs, get different benefits, go different places. Um, so while real wages are down, you gotta, have, you gotta come to the table um, with, with something. And you also just have to realize that midterms are about turnout. And when Donald Trump's not on the ballot, uh, you, it, by the way, they have Hollywood against them. There's no question, especially on Dobbs. The entire machine of Hollywood and the media. So it's not like this is easy. It, you know, it, it's it's not. It's not easy. It's extremely difficult. Democrats have huge baked-in cultural advantages, huge ones. Um, but they didn't. They didn't do it, and Republicans didn't seem to realize that they needed to be clearer about abortion and the economy. So. Um, just, I, I'm, I'll turn it over to somebody else, um, but I just wanted to put one data point on what Emily is saying. Exit polls in Pennsylvania showed abortion was 10 points above inflation in terms of issues that voters cared about. So, I mean, I think this is kind of a mea culpa for a lot of us on the right, I'll, I, although I will point out that IW um, did run a lot of our, our C4 arm, did run a lot of uh, just purely informational ads on abortion, trying to give... Uh, um, voters per, kind of quote unquote permission to think about other things other than abortion by assuring them that, hey, you know, the, the abortion law in your state hasn't really gone anywhere. It isn't really going anywhere. 
Um, you know, but uh, I, 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 so I'll give sort of IW credit and, and not myself on this one because I didn't, I was with you, Emily. I thought they way overestimated how important this, this issue is to the American people. But I also think the vacuum around abortion that you're, uh, that you're pointing to message and kind of being afraid to talk about it in most cases also allowed the media to get away with a lot of misinformation. And I say this as a moderate on abortion, like a lot of misinformation about what was actually on the ballot, you know, what were the actual proposals involved, what overturning Roe actually did. Um, there's a huge amount, if you look at polls of what people think happened with the overturning of Roe and what actually legally happened, there's just a huge gap there that Republicans are going to have to figure out a way to actually fill um, in the way that they have on some of these other cultural issues, but I've been afraid to on abortion. Yeah, I think the the last thing maybe worth saying on this point is that because I agree with everything that's that's been said, and I just I really do think it's unconscionable that the Republicans have not figured out how to talk about pro life issues. This has been the centerpiece of our party for so long, and yet you see people running from the issue. And the reason I think it was so devastating was because again it goes back to this idea, you know, the the drum I continue to bang on having an agenda. If you remember, Biden was very clear. He said, if you give my party control, if you stick with Democrats, what is the one thing he promised them? I will, my number one priority will be protecting the right to abortion. That's what he said, literally. And, and I couldn't believe he said it because literally like inflation's the highest been in 40 years. You know, you have all this other stuff. And he's like, no, no, no. My number one goal here is abortion politics. But you know what? He had a plan and he and he laid it out there and Republicans couldn't answer it. Not only did they not have their own agenda, they couldn't combat the one thing the guy in the White House was saying he was going to focus on. And that's just political malpractice, people. Right. Like that's it's not more complicated than that. And so I think this is like if if we're going to learn anything going forward, like we need to get members who are committed, not only able to talk about like pro-life policies and politics and why it's important, but are personally committed to being able to, to, to speak authentically on the issue, because that's the other thing, right? People can tell when you're just phoning it in. People can tell when you're scared of the issue. People can tell when you're reading off a card. So, uh, you know, we, we have, at least we can draw some clear lessons about what we need to fix. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> and just to put some numbers on this, Married, this is according to Brad Wilcox. Married men broke Republican by 20 points. Married women broke Republican by 14 points. Unmarried men broke Republican by seven points. Unmarried women broke Democrat by 37 points. 37 points. That's, and then those so are the numbers I was I was did not have. So thank you for reading them. But yeah, that's those are the numbers that I was reading. And so then the question becomes, you know, part of it is okay, the individual candidates. Where do they shake out and argue or not argue on abortion and inflation for that matter? Which I'll be very interested to see ultimately uh, to what extent did the Biden administration executive order on, you know, quote unquote, increasing uh, voter registration and participation as well come into play. And for those who aren't familiar with it, this executive order, which came out in, I think, March of 2021, when Democrats were really pushing hard for HR1 to essentially federalize elections, essentially put the power within every single agency of the federal government to turn their offices into voter registration and voting centers as well. 
And the executive order was basically cribbed from Demos, which is a progressive think tank. Uh, there were a couple Biden administration officials who had worked at Demos, one of them who was responsible for drafting this white paper. That was the blueprint, it seems, for the order. And the administration has been has obfuscated for months about what the plans were drawn up by these agencies to push this voter registration and participation drive, what the agencies actually did, and then whether or not they partnered with third party, presumably progressive, but they would claim, I'm sure, independent and nonpartisan organizations to actually go about mobilizing voters. So it's going to be fascinating to see if essentially we had the federal version of Zuckerbucks with the full power of all agencies of the government involved with essentially electioneering or what could be seen as de facto electioneering uh, during this race. What other, okay, so to turn from kind of the negatives to potential positive or at least something, a, a different kind of insight to be gleaned or not from this race. Florida obviously diverged from the rest of the country. And Florida was a huge resounding victory for Ron DeSantis and others as well, but of course led by Ron DeSantis for a couple of reasons. One, because there was a massive red wave within Florida. And two, there was a massive red wave with a 20 point victory essentially for DeSantis where he had just barely squeaked out a win against an ultra hardcore progressive last time around in a year where there was not a red wave nationally. So it was a twofold dominant resounding victory there, which I think we'd all probably interpret as this is someone who won on the messaging, but also was the right messenger and who actually took that messaging and turned it into concrete policies executed on behalf of his constituents. And was a magnet, turned Florida into a magnet for a conservative nationwide, which, by the way, Lee Zeldin himself might have been a victim of. So Florida success might have been victimization for others across the country. So you have that model on the one hand, and we can talk about that victory in and of itself. On the other hand, I would point out, look at Ohio, which also, it seems, has basically essentially become a red state, though maybe not with the same tinge as Florida. DeWine there the spread between DeWine's victory for governor and J.D. Vance's victory, which I think we're all very happy about, was massive. It was like a 17 or 18 point spread at last check between the two. What do we make of the spread between kind of the establishment candidate there, nationalist candidate, and then what we saw in Florida? Is the DeSantis model replicable elsewhere or does it have to be kind of tailored to, you know, where like DeSantis probably would not perform necessarily as well as a Yunkin in Virginia. Maybe we could debate that. But is it at least directionally transferable to other places? Or is there still a massive divide between where the establishment can be successful and where the more insurgent, quote unquote, new right candidates can be successful? Well, I'll jump in on that just because um, Rachel has been tweeting furiously. Uh, <laughs> um, I think Rachel has, has raised some interesting points um, about Ron DeSantis that I'm sure she'll get into uh, over the course of this conversation. I think the, the this is going to sound weird. The last 24 hours have felt to me similarly to January 6th, which is that a lot of conservatives, not just establishment Republicans, who for some very good reasons are perennially frustrated with Donald Trump, have felt like they have found the reason to get to finally purge the Republican Party of Donald Trump and Trumpism as they see it. That 
Donald Trump is a distraction. Like he did what he did, but now it's time to move on. And a whole lot of those folks to me seem to be in the DeSantis camp and seem to be in the DeSantis camp, almost like a football team. Um, and yeah, some of them live in Florida, so it's understandable, but uh, it, it has become, in a way, I think it, it's, it's similar to how the never Trump movement congealed in 2015 and 2016. And it's not like that yet. I'm just saying, I see the germ of something that could become like that. Um, because I think Ron DeSantis is great for a lot of reasons. I think he has passed some good policies. I think he has made so much progress on the public's perception of the media by standing up in high profile fights and showing the public that they are lying, outright lying, and that they're incompetent um, by eating away at his, his, his own corporate support and being willing to take on corporations in some tough ways and tough battles that Republicans wouldn't have done before. Um, and I, I honestly think there was some talk over the like summer that he was more Nixonian than Trump. Um, I mean, nobody is Trump, but he, he has charisma um, to the point where he won what's like an insane percentage of the vote. He won Miami-Dade County by, by double digits. <laughs> like he's not a cardboard cutout. Um, you know, that, that's serious stuff. So I like Ron DeSantis for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge Youngkin person, but I appreciate as a former like PE executive what Youngkin has been willing to do. So I, I mean, I, I think it's just a, a matter of finding that sweet spot with people. And DeSantis is a good example of how you can do it. I was just... Uh, responding to a, a Chris Rufo tweet about DeSantis ha having past policies. Well, why does the fear neutralize it from the media and from Democrats? You pass policies like love or hate Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp passed the voting law. Kemp did. Um, Herschel Walker obviously isn't an incumbent, so he doesn't have that. But Brian Kemp passed the voting law that was, that was called Jim Crow 2.0 and Jim Eagle and all of the fear mongering went away and people seem to like it, right? Voter turnout is up. So I think probably for Republicans, the lesson of DeSantis's success is a good one, which is to actually do some damn stuff and to not be ashamed to say that you did some damn stuff. So, uh, I mean, maybe that's what this looks like going forward. And that helps you campaign as well, because you can say, here, here's the, the contract with America, read the stuff that we're going to do. Uh, it was a very long document um, compared to, let's say the commitment to America. Um, but yeah, th there's going to be a sweet spot between Trump and, and Trumpism that not everybody can find, um, but that, you know, it exists. And the, just these, these, there's a lot of time left. It doesn't feel like it, but time is just a flat circle um, and anything can happen at any moment. We have no idea. Uh, so there are going to be other people that prove themselves able to replicate DeSantis's success or, or convincingly might have the ability to replicate DeSantis's success, it's not going to be Nikki Haley, you know, right? It's, like, it's not that. Yeah, okay. I, I totally agree with that. But I, I was just thinking, I was writing down here, all the sort of potential reasons that this night didn't pan out for Republicans that we have listed. And it occurs to me that in Florida, not one of them is true. Okay, so Ron DeSantis had a clear vision as evidenced by the policies that he passed. He had that combination of being really tough on sort of modern culture war issues, but also 
express like just sort of exudes competence. And I, I would point to his management of, of this, the most recent major storm in Florida. And now he's dealing with another one. I think we shouldn't underestimate how much goodwill that buys him. Just like the basic paving of the roads and putting the lights back on um, shows that, hey, we're serious. Um, there is the continued shift of the Hispanic population in Florida into the red column, something that did not continue all over the country. Um, yes, there's the, the internal migration issue. There are probably more Republicans in Florida because they've left other states. And yes, I think that did uh, a blunt, for example, Zeldin in, in New York. Um, he dealt with abortion in a fairly moderate way and got it off the table quickly. So he there there was a 15-week ban in Florida, which is happens to be right where the American public generally is on abortion. And so once that law was sort of already passed immediately after Dobbs, it became sort of a non-issue in Florida in the way that it was an issue, an ongoing issue by the time you get to November in a lot of these other states, in part to what Emily is saying, there because the Republican Party didn't do anything about it. So it stayed kind of an issue. And the 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 sort of misinformation about the sky falling on it continued to be like sort of persuasive to people because nothing had happened yet um so it, it occurs to me that oh and then finally this of, of gen x as opposed to the gerontocracy that we're all living under i think these are all really good things for desantis that doesn't mean that he can take the republican nomination i think it's like sort of stuff that appeals to um appeals to us uh, as a sort of analysts and people who have a more like policy-based sort of perspective. Um, I think a lot of people only interact with policy when they interact with it in their lives. And, and you got to win first before you can do that, right? It's not just about, it's not talking about policy. I'm not convinced is actually a winning strategy so much as actually governing um, and putting forward. And actually I have a, I have a specific example without which we would not have Ron DeSantis in Florida of that. Um, Florida, and these are these are uh, you know wins for for folks that politically I, I dislike within the party, uh, but Florida, Jeb Bush was a, a relatively good governor of Florida, and most importantly, put in place a bunch of school choice programs. And there's a very good case to be made that the very narrow margin that DeSantis won by uh, in 2018 came from um, school choice moms who already had. Essentially, he got votes that he demographically should not have gotten from Hispanic and Black mothers with kids in school choice programs because they were actually receiving the benefits of that program. Um, that was a much more convincing case than an abstract case. I'll say one more thing. I don't think that there are two camps of voters like DeSantis voters and Trump voters nearly as much as there are DeSantis people among the chattering classes of the right and Trump people among the chattering classes of the right. I think yeah. most people in the Republican Party love both of these guys. I and think I that's 100% true. I mean, yes, they haven't really started too much of the haymakers thrown at each other yet. I mean, Trump is taking his digs. DeSantis is ignoring him. That may change if they actually do run against each other. But as of now, I think it's much, much more common to love both Trump and DeSantis than to have like one of these I feel like this this is still in the chattering classes and not actually in the voting voting base. Well, I will I say we may true. we may have a we may have sort of a split screen head to head preview when it comes to Georgia, assuming that there's going to be cause for Ron DeSantis to go out to Georgia and run hard alongside Walker, and that they're also going to be cause for Trump to run or not to run alongside Walker as well. So that might be the first proxy battle among the proxy battles for potential primary matchup for 24. 
So I think the the DeSantis dynamic is really interesting to me. And Emily mentioned I was tweeting about it because as as longtime uh, observers of of NatCon squad may know, one of my like hobby horses is to watch what the Republican establishment is doing and figure out why they're doing it, right? That I am like kind of obsessed with that dynamic. And one of the things I have noticed today immediately is that, well, kind of over time, but the pile on happened today is that you are now seeing establishment figures within the Republican or right-leaning universe like David French, like Paul Ryan, like Wall Street uh, coming out and saying, oh yeah, uh, National Review said this too, like DeSantis guy. Like he's the one we need. And I, this isn't a reflection on Ron DeSantis necessarily. Like, I think I agree with everything in Esleta. I think he's an incredibly competent. I think he is single-minded and focused and an incredibly effective politician, but it, why are these people suddenly pivoting now and saying DeSantis is our, is our guy that immediately like piques my interest. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. I think first, you know, All these people saying this about DeSantis, like, hate Trump, like they're on the record hating Trump, right? So I think they obviously see him as like the alternative to Trump, the acceptable alternative or Trump with table manners or whatever, Uh, you know, they like it, they like him better. Um, But that tells me also potentially that like they think they can quote unquote work with him or control him or co-opt him in some way. I am not saying that that is possible. I don't know that that's possible, but they seriously think that either that is possible and that's, you know, they, that's why they want him. Or the alternative to that is that they just see him as, okay, we can get rid of Trump by supporting DeSantis and then we can dump DeSantis and then, you know, question mark, question mark, Mitt Romney, right? Like (laughs) we're back to, we've regressed back to the mean of Bain Capital firing people, right? Like they eventually want to go back to that. So right, like Tim is, Scott, Nikki Haley. Right, yep. exactly. Yeah. So it's it's you know use DeSantis to route Trump. Yeah. Question mark. Question mark. Nikki Haley. If you don't want Mitt Romney, right? So this is what I'm very interested in watching now, and I think we need to be very aware of this dynamic moving forward. I personally think, and again, this isn't. I'm not making a value judgment on Trump versus DeSantis. I think there's a path to victory for both of them, but I think Trump's path to victory still exists. Um, There are people in Washington that disagree with me on this, but I think that Trump has a a very special and visceral connection with the the base that no one has been able to replicate. And I think they took a gam, like everyone's like, oh, Trump is such a risky bet. Well, they already took the risk, right? The voter, Republican voters already took the risk on Trump and for many, and it paid off for them in many ways. Roe was gone in many ways because of Trump, you know? And so I, I think until you give them someone else that, makes that bet with them, fights for them, isn't ashamed of them, you know, has that emotional appeal that I think Trump represents to a lot of people, you know, I still think his path to victory exists. You know, I think the debate going forward on the right is like, well, whether it should or not, but you can't overlook that. And I think the people glomming on to the DeSantis bandwagon, I think are intentionally trying to make that go away. To, to deny yes. that that exists. I, I completely agree that his path of victory still exists. The only rejoinder I would give is that, yes, theoretically, maybe they're betting on the idea that Ron DeSantis can be hijacked or Ron DeSantis administration can be hijacked by the establishment. Well, one of the reasons they might believe they can do that is they pretty effectively hijack Trump's uh, in that, reality. Yeah, it's not it's not a potentiality, right? The, the major legislative achievements of Trump's presidency were tax cuts and criminal justice reform. Just 
Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's, the, that's not a potentiality. That's not a, a maybe the establishment can hijack an administration. We know that it already happened. Now, maybe Trump has learned his lesson on that. It's entirely possible that he has. Um, but I'm just, I just had to point out that it has actually happened, not just in theory, but in actuality. Yeah. The one final thing I want to say on this though, is the characterization I saw today. And I, I don't mean to like knock national review, but they characterized Trump as the GOP establishment now. And I was like, what? <laughs> that is just actually ludicrous. Like every single person in the establishment hates Donald Trump. He is definitionally not the establishment. Anyway, so beware of how the narrative is going to change. I think this is something I'm going to continue to watch because it's just fascinating how fast it's moving. That sounds like an inadvertent admission of how bad they think the GOP establishment brand is. Yeah. So that's, it's <laughs> that's sort fair. of like a cell phone there. Yeah, I was just going to throw out, and, and obviously we're going to be having this DeSantis-Trump conversation probably for months on end. So this is a good start to that conversation. I will point out a few other positives because I mainly had negatives on my list from last night. Um, obviously, the DCCC chairman Maloney uh, getting thrown out of New York, big victory. Um, also, the January 6th committee members, like there is some justice for these people. Um, it, and that is, I guess, you know, if you're going to take away one silver lining, there were people who got knocked off last night who deserve to be knocked off and were, despite the fact that uh, unfortunately, we've been punished with these policies for two years, and they're going to persist uh, in a lot of instances. Um, you know, notwithstanding, of course, yes, like we kind of just take it for granted now, but it, with a Republican House, obviously, that is going to serve as a partial break on the worst of the Biden administration's policies. We'll see what happens in the Senate. In fact, even with a 51-49 Republican majority, if we got there, we'll see what that would serve as a break for when it comes to nominations, probably something worth watching. I will put out, you know, for anyone who wants to take it in the few remo remaining moments that we have, what do you think the Republican House strategy to the extent there is one ought to be? Um, now, how that actually plays itself out, we'll have to see based upon who leadership is, like we Kevin McCarthy, and then you know, how much he's impacted by having a small majority there as well, all things to consider. Uh, but what do you think the Republican House should actually do in these two years? Everyone's like, oh. well, I, actually, I, no, ahead, I Rachel. have thoughts on this. The only oh, thing sure I, you do. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I want to see from a Republican House, like literally the only two things I want to see are spending fights and impeachments. Literally, that's it. I like I don't think like anything else substantively is going to probably die in the Senate or not get signed by Biden. Spending fights are where the only place they're going to be able to implement any policy proposals that, you know they want to do. And the reason I'm I say impeachment, sorry, what? I'm just surprised to hear you say that because I would think antitrust would be one thing you would. <laughs> you can no, do. I mean, like they they can do if if you can get McCarthy to do antitrust, you can do antitrust. To see that as a as a policy agenda moving forward, I'm saying the thing the easiest the like lowest hanging possible fruit are these bills that have to pass, right? Spending bills. And so if you aren't waging war on some of these policies, on these bills that Joe Biden has to sign and the Senate has to pass, you're just like missing the one opportunity that's hanging in your face. So that's the reason I say that. I say impeachments too, because people call these shiny and I think they are, they, can, they tend to be distracting. But what I've learned from the Mueller investigation, Durham, all this kind of stuff is that nobody's going to be held accountable ever, apparently. And so maybe the Congress is the last final step for people to actually be held accountable for anything. 
Also, yeah, this really is just you, tit for tat. Like you have to impeach people to counter the fact that impeachment has now been totally normalized by the left. Of course, whether or not the House Republicans could actually politically soundly execute impeachments of, say, Merrick Garland and Alejandro Mayorkas, I think is yet to be seen. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think in just to add to what Rachel said, war means more than cuts in these bills. It means actually trying to circumscribe what some of these agencies can do. Um, and I think Rachel is dead on on that. Um, two more like unrelated points. Uh, if Masters pulls it out, which is not completely out of the cards, in fact, kind of seems to be looking better over time rather than worse, um, cross the fingers here, but um, that will be two senators, at least J.D. Uh, Vance and Masters, who owe absolutely bleeping nothing to Mitch McConnell in in the Senate. And I think that can only be a good thing. Um, finally, there's there's a, a race that I still don't know the outcome of, uh, but I think is indicative of the fact that there is a lot of energy around the issue of law and order and crime that the Republican Party just hasn't managed to fully capitalize on in some of these races. In Alameda County, that's Oakland, right? Um, there is a race to kick out the, the, um, the Soros-backed DA, uh, ultra-liberal DA there that is still not able to be called. And that is the bluest part of California. Um, so I think there, there is some real legs uh, to that to that issue. And if Republicans properly capitalize on it, I think it could be a very good issue for them. That'll just be my final thought. It's just, uh, we don't know where some of these races are going to go by the end of the week, but it's possible that because the ones that were decided on Tuesday night and into Wednesday morning, um, you didn't have a lot of those toss-ups like New Hampshire, people thought were gonna fall into the mix. Oregon was just decided within the last like half day and it, it, the Republican didn't win, but came insanely close. We know Zeldin lost, um, but like Wynez just said, Almeida County, uh, LA is still not in. Um, and then you look at like what Maria Elvira, Sa Elvira Salazar did down in Miami is putting up huge numbers on the board um, in a district that was barely voting for Trump uh, a few years ago. So and if Masters gets in, we don't know if Carrie Lake gets in, if Laxalt gets in um, and Republicans win the House and the Senate, then I, I mean, sure, you didn't pick up Bolduc, but it, it's not a disaster for even though you know you're not trouncing uh, like like was ex as was expected in some of those places. Sure, you didn't pick up Bolduc, but it's not an utter disaster. That is a good final word, perhaps for this episode. I think it's amazing, by the way. We didn't even get to the fact that we have all these races that have not been decided and may not be decided for days, and that's the new normal. When for the entirety of our history, we had election night and we knew the results on election night. But that'll be for another episode in any event. So on behalf of Inez, Emily, and Rachel, it's been real. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten. We'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.